you were here uh, three weeks ago or if you were watching online, you'll hopefully recall that Jeremy started this series uh, by speaking about fellowship uh, between Christians. And he talked about the importance of being in fellowship specifically with other believers and how it's not only something that's helpful and joyful, uh, but also something that's critical for each of us. And then uh, Nikki continued that last week by talking about being together in music or in worship specifically. So today we're going to continue this series on togetherness and talk about, not, talk about what it means not just to be in fellowship with other believers, but actually to, how to serve other believers around us and what that means. Not talking about serving the community or the world, which uh, JT and Michael Day are going to speak about in the next few weeks, but today we're going to talk specifically about what it means to serve the church body around us, our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you don't mind, let's pray and uh, then we can open up the word. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful weather, Lord. Seriously, it's, it's beautiful, Father. Thank you for sunshine, for a cool breeze. Um, what a blessing, Father. And thank you, Lord, that uh, we're all here together, together as a family, Lord. Um, what a blessing, Lord, to have a church family around us. Um, and Father, my prayer today, Lord, is that you would speak through me, Lord, truly. Move me out of the way, Lord, uh, and put your words in me, Father, um, to speak on this, Lord. Um, it's not my opinion that matters. It's really not. It's not what I think that matters, Father. Um, my prayer truly, Lord, uh, is that you would speak to all of us today, Father, uh, including myself, Lord. Um, thank you for the privilege of being your children uh, and being your family, Father. Um, please be with us here today. In Christ's name, amen. So like I mentioned, uh, we're going to start uh, in a sim- kind of a similar place to where Jeremy spoke on a few weeks ago. Uh, so please turn with me uh, to Romans 1, verse 7. And we're going to read a chunk here between verse 7 and 12 um, as we get started talking about what it means to to be together in community uh, and to serve each other as part of the church body. So Romans 1, um, chapter 1, uh, we'll read verse 7 through 12. This is Paul writing this letter. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So if you're familiar with um, Paul's letters, um, he's often writing to a church because there's some specific situation that that church is facing, such as reprimanding the Galatian church due to false teaching or the letter to the church at Thessalonica, which is kind of a follow-up to his visit there, and he's commending them for their ongoing faith. But this letter to Romans starts out differently from those, um, which is what makes it really interesting. This letter is simply Paul writing to fellow believers And this letter in particular, overall, the body of the letter has been regarded as arguably the greatest piece of Christian literature ever written. And this letter to the Romans has played perhaps one of the most integral roles in shaping Western culture, specifically through its impact on Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others. For Martin Luther, it was Romans 1.17, which says the just shall live by faith, that sparked the entire Protestant Reformation, which of course pulled the church back from the brink 
of unbiblical teaching and back to uh, teachings that were specifically based on Scripture. John Piper, if you're familiar with him, even credits Romans specifically with calling him into ministry. Uh, he tells that story in uh, the first sermon of a series he does on the entire book of Romans, which I think took him like eight years. So Romans is, is incredibly weighty uh, and incredibly important to the church and undeniably one of God's greatest gifts to the global church. But undergirding all of the truths in Romans, all of the theological clarifications that have kept the church aligned and guided over the years, underpinning all of that is what we read here. It's one idea we can see in these first few verses of this first chapter of Romans. Paul opens this letter, one of the greatest letters ever written, by saying to the church that it is not enough to just be able to write to you all the things that I'm about to write. All of the truths that are there, that are about to be here, that I'm going to impart to you, it's not enough. Paul starts out by saying some, he wants somehow by God's will to at last succeed in coming to you. He says, I long to see you to the church. Paul's deep desire that he opens with here is that he would be able to go and physically be with the church. Yes, he's about to communicate some incredibly deep theology to them, but what he really wants is to be with the church in Romans. Paul finds it important not just that he communicates with these Christians at a distance, which he does all the time and which he's about to do here, but he finds it important that he is able to physically be with them. And then he goes on to say that he wants to be able to be with them and serve them. In verse 11, he says that he longs to see them and impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. And it's funny, he says some spiritual gift as if he's not even quite sure exactly what he wants to impart to them. He doesn't really have an agenda specifically, uh, but his desire, his longing, he says, is to be with them. And what's especially interesting is what he tacks on in verse 12, that not only that he would be able to serve them and encourage them, but there's an expectation on his part that he would be encouraged and served by their faith as well. There's a kind of mutual service that Paul is longing for here. And that's what we're going to talk about here today is this expectation of this kind of service. These verses are not a one-off example of some special Christian stepping up to do something really abnormal or something beyond what God calls us to. This expectation here of service is just as much for us, the body, as it is for church leadership. It's just as much for us as it is for elders or deacons or a church staff member. And this division of church leaders and the body as a whole and the fact that serving is expected from the body and from leadership, from both groups, this idea is spoken to in many specific places in the Bible. Uh, and for the first one here, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Paul's writing here, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So sidebar, this is what we're talking about here. He's talking about the leaders first here. He's talking about church leadership, but continuing reading, he moves to the body. He says, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So this structure being described here refers to a group of leaders 
who are, being, who are to be respected and esteemed because of the work they're doing for the church. But then there's a very clear set of commands to the church as well regarding how they, the body, are to interact with one another. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. These are commands to the church, to us. Help the weak, be patient, and the list goes on. These commands that we just read through here, these are not a picture of a group of people coming together once a week to chit-chat for a few minutes before the service and to sing songs with each other, and then when the sermon ends, to leave. And this isn't and Paul isn't writing this to some really special, unique group of people that's very distant and kind of unrelated to us. He's writing this to a church, uh, just like to our church. And God has this here for us to receive truth from it, just like the church at Thessalonica did. And what this means, what these commands mean, is that God has work for us as a church. He has work for us within the church as a body. Within the body, there are expectations placed on us by God with regard to our participation in the community of saints that we find ourselves a part of. And while those specific commands that we read given by Paul to the Thessalonian church are very helpful, now that we have this idea, I'd like to back up and look at three higher level, broader commands given to all of us by God generally in scripture. And these commands, are there are three commands given to us that direct us in our service to the body to one another, not necessarily to the world, although some of them overlap, uh, not necessarily in missions work, but specifically within our own body. So for the first of these, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. That's how excited we should be right now. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is pretty straightforward, and lots of us have probably even studied these verses before. But this idea of spiritual gifts, gifts that God has given to us individually, and which are intended to be used to glorify him, especially in service for the church. This idea is probably not new to many of us here, but what we should not miss here is that God is actually telling us two things here. The first is obvious, what many of us have probably studied before, which is that these gifts exist. We have been given them. These are things that God has given us to use in service to the church. We're probably aware of this. But the really important thing not to miss here is a second point being made by Peter, which is that we are actually commanded to use these gifts. Just being aware of them and acknowledging, for example, that you're good at organizing events maybe, uh, or good at cooking and preparing meals, just acknowledging that you have those gifts, but choosing to use them only to serve your family or perhaps in your line of work because you have to in order to make a living, that would be a waste to only use them in those areas. Withholding them from serving the body of Christ is specifically against the commands of God here. Choosing to use the gifts that God has given us isn't optional if we love God and if we love the glory of God. We're constrained by our devotion to God's worth and glory. We're constrained by that to use these gifts in service to those around us. First Peter says to use our gifts as good stewards of God's varied grace. And what this is saying is that we don't have these individual gifts that we have 
because our DNA makeup just happened to align to cause us to have these gifts and our environment happened to cultivate them. What this is saying is that God looked on you and me specifically, personally, and gifted us with these unique set of strength, sets of strengths. And it says varied grace, meaning a variety of grace. It varied from person to person. One person has obviously been given one skill, uh, while another person has been given a different skill. And with all of these, it says we are called to be good stewards, which is the really important thing to think about. It's not enough that we just identify that we have them. It's important that, we are, that we're good stewards with these gifts God has given to us. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the master entrusts three servants with talents or money, uh, the Greek word being talenton, which is where we get the word talents from. And in this parable, two of the servants are given much and they make great use of it. But the third servant is given very little. He does nothing with it. And then when the master returns, the servant has excuses as to why he's not made use of the gifts that were given to him or of the talents that were given to him. And in that parable, when Jesus is talking about the two servants who were given a lot and the one servant who wasn't and who, or who was given little but chose to do nothing with it, the story ends, the parable ends with Jesus saying that the master cast that servant away. It says, into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because the servant didn't use the gifts that were given to him, which is a pretty shocking result, to me at least, to go from this sort of understandable and relatable parable, which is a story about making the appropriate use of the resources given to us. It transitions from that into the servant being cast into somewhere where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, clearly a metaphor for hell. So why was this the case? Why Why are there such high expectations on us to use our talents? and such harsh punishments described here for those who choose not to use them? And the answer is in the second of the verses that we read in 1 Peter chapter 4. The latter part of verse 11 says that these things should be done in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's why there are these expectations on us with regards to the talents God has given us. We are not given talents and skills so that we can use them primarily for our own benefit or not use them at all. What we have and what we're able to do, the gifts we've been given, the skills we have, have been given to us specifically so that we would use it to glorify God through Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Peter says here. That's why we have them. That's really the only reason we have them, that we were given abilities and talents. When I was a teenager, maybe 13 or 14 years old, and I'd first started going to church regularly and really wanting to go. That was really what it was, was because I'd gone a little before then, but I kind of regularly wanted to go. And the main reason was that it was because they had these video game systems set up in the youth room. And so before the service, I don't really know how I feel about this now in hindsight, like looking back on it, but it is what it is. Uh, But before the service, we would come in and play video games. And then afterwards, the youth would go back in there and, and play video games again. And uh, one day, um, this older gentleman came through, and he comes in, and he kind of looks at all of us, and I guess I was the one that was playing at the time, and he asks, like, oh, are you one of these kids that's good at these video games here? I was like, yeah, I guess. I'm pretty good. And he's like, all right, come with me. This is real. This is how it happened. Uh, he's like, come with me. And he, like, leads me off. This, like, the service was starting maybe 30 minutes from then, and he leads me off into this side room that I'd never been in before that's right next to the sanctuary, And in this side room, it had like this big rectangular device with like hundreds of knobs on it and these little like sliders on the bottom. I never seen anything like it before really. But he points past that and he's like, go sit over there. 
and he points to this box that has joysticks on it with like buttons, not a controller, but like a box with joysticks on it. And he explains that this box controls a set of robotic cameras in the sanctuary and that those are used to film and record the church service, which gets broadcast on TV a week later for elderly church members who aren't able to come to church. We had a lot of elderly church members who, who were no longer able to make it um, for whatever reason. And then also just generally so that people flipping channels could, could find a church service on TV. And controlling this robotic camera was pretty easy for me to do. I mean, I was very familiar with joysticks and controlling things like that. I'd never had any issues uh, not doing well at playing video games. Uh, as far back as I could remember, I was pretty decent at it. So I had a skill set and a gift, if you can even call it that, but I'd been using it purely for worldly purposes. I, I didn't even, it wasn't even a thought in my mind that I could be using it to serve God. But this gentleman saw that talent with technology, uh, as small as it was, and he redirected me to use it in a way that glorifies God. Really, he directed me to use it in the way that I should have always been thinking about using it. And in the context of what we're talking about today, not only was I using it for worldly purposes, purely worldly purposes, and wasting what God had given me, but if you think about it, I really was in active disobedience to the commands that we've been reading here because I wasn't serving at all. I specifically wasn't serving the body. I just came early so I could play video games with my friends. But I'm thankful now that this guy, his name's Mark, uh, called me into service rather than letting me continue in this sort of ignorance. It's disobedience, but it was, it was ignorant disobedience. The point is, is that I promise you, it doesn't matter what your skill set is, um, God can use it, and God can specifically use it to serve the body, to serve uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. First Peter still applies to all of us, regardless of the gifts that we may believe God has given us or not given us. Uh, we are being called by God here in all these verses to use these gifts in service to those around us. And even outside of specific giftings, God calls all of us into general service to the church. He calls all of us into a type of kind of non-specific service that really anyone can do um, and that everyone is, is expected to do. I said earlier we'd be looking at three commands that instruct us into how to serve the church. And the first of those was to use our specific gifts per 1 Peter 4.10. But the second command is here. Uh, it's found in Galatians 6, chapter 2. It's a very short verse, but I'll give you a second to turn there. It's like 11 words. Galatians 6, or Galatians 6, verse 2. Or cha Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Sorry. It just says simply, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The first half of this verse is a call to serve the body around you by taking on the burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ. For the duration of the world, probably the world, but certainly this nation, the United States, um, this, this command is something that the government has always tried to construct a framework around for the benefit of society because everyone, everyone knows that there are times when we each need help. We need someone to bear our burdens. No one's immune from that. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. But secular society at large has never really been quite able to meet this need, not even in our own country, which has arguably made some of the greatest efforts uh, ever from a societal standpoint to provide help in bearing the burdens of those who, who need help. And over the past 50 years, sociologists have started to realize that religious communities specifically, really Christianity, 
is uniquely suited to distribute the burdens of individuals across a larger group of people. And so secular uh, sociologists have ended up in this really strange place, and I've heard some of them say it. It's really, really interesting. They end up in this really weird place where they actually have to encourage people to be a part of some local body, some specific, of a church, really. And I've even heard a few say specifically Christian churches, which is really interesting to hear them say that. And they're, of course, looking at it purely from the, the, the sort of uh, benefits that are provided from having others to help you. But it's specifically interesting because society at large has been aware of this about the Christian church since, well, really since the first century, since the church was created. In the mid-second century, a Greek non-Christian author named Lucian wrote the following about Christians. He said, you know, I'm going to read the whole quote. I was only going to read part of it, but the first part's too interesting to not read. He said, The poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. So he's obviously not a Christian. He says, The consequence of which is that they despise death, meaning they don't take it seriously, they don't respect it, uh, and even willingly give themselves into custody, uh, most of them. So that was the part I wasn't going to read, but just to put you in the frame of mind that this person's not someone that's friendly to Christians. And then the thing he says that's relevant to now, he says, uh, their first lawgiver, presumably referring to Christ, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another. Therefore, they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. So this is what he was writing about the early Christian church, that they had been convinced that they were all brothers of one another. They were all a family. And that's the second century. So as a result of that type of thinking, the church was obviously becoming known for being loving and generous and bearing one another's burdens. And so skipping forward in time, just a few hundred years, we have writings from a Roman emperor in the fourth century, Julian, who was having, he, he was trying to move the Roman empire back to pagan worship and he was having a lot of trouble with it. And he was specifically annoyed with the Galileans and he wrote, when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but also our poor, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So the point of these two quotes, uh, of the first one uh, writing about how the early church saw themselves as brothers, uh, and then this quote from an emperor, Julian, where he says that the Galileans are supporting not only their own poor, but ours as well. The point is that the church was known at that time and really has always been known for its generosity not only to others outside the church, but also specifically to the body, to, to its own body, to those who are consider themselves members of the church. But of course, this can only be the case when members of the church are obeying the commands we've read in 1 Peter and in Galatians, the commands to bear one another's burden. If we're not doing that, then these things aren't gonna be true about the church. And while there can certainly be a financial aspect to this, Tithes are, of course, used to the church, or are used, tithes to the church are used to help members of the church who find themselves in financial need. Giving to the church does not completely fulfill the responsibility placed on us. I would say it probably based on what we're reading here, the amount of talk about finances means it really doesn't even fulfill the bulk of the responsibility being placed on us. And the reason why it doesn't is because perhaps surprisingly, many, if not most, of the burdens that we need to help others bear are not financial burdens. Oftentimes, they're not even something that money can be spent to fix. There are many, many cases of burdens that can only be borne by being physically present with someone. 
whether it's watching someone's kids while they run to the doc a doctor's appointment or praying with someone who's going through a hard time, or even just signing up early to arrive to church to help set up. All of these are ways to bear one another's burdens, and all of them require us to be physically present and part of the body. We may feel like we're open to obeying these verses. In our hearts, we may feel like we're willing to bear one another's burdens. If only someone would ask, uh, then we would help. Um, but if we're not present and part of a church body, then even setting aside the spiritual issues that come with that, logistically, we can't obey this verse if we're not actively part of a church community. I can't know that Adam needs help cleaning his garage. I've never helped Adam clean his garage, but I, I can't know that, that, that he needs that if I'm not part of a church body and I'm not friends with Adam and I'm not talking with him and, and regularly hanging out with him. I, I wouldn't even know. So even if in my heart I feel like I'm, I'm willing to fulfill these verses and bear one another's burdens, if I'm not part of a church body, I can't serve the church body in that way. Bearing one another's burdens requires at least three levels of action. The willingness to bear, which, which many have, the physical presence to be aware of, the, of one another's burdens and to let them know that you're there. And then finally, the third is the actual act of bearing the burden itself. The middle of those two, the act of being present, being here at church, um, being part of a body is just as crucial as the first and the third. We really haven't talked yet about the latter half of that verse that we read in Galatians, uh, which says that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, but I certainly think that's worth talking about. The law of Christ, interestingly enough, is not explained here, presumably because it's assumed that the reader understands what it is. And in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say that if we love him, we will keep the Old Testament commandments or the Ten Commandments. He says, you will keep my commandments. Of course, the book of Hebrews says that that first set, the Old Testament commandments, that system has been taken away and replaced with a second system. So what commandments is Christ referring to here as we're digging into the law of Christ? What commandments is he referring to? Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. So we'll just read here through to verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the law of Christ being referred to here is that we love God with all of our being and love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we read in John, if we love Christ, then we will keep his commandments. We will keep these commandments we've just read. To be clear, when it says that, if we love God, if we love Christ, we'll keep these commandments. It's not a threat to our salvation if we fail to do this perfectly. Of course, that's the entire point of Christ's death on the cross. God knows we're going to fail. But if we love God and if we love Christ, we should want to do these things. We should want to obey his words and keep his commandments. The Apostle Paul describes that mindset like this. He says in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So regarding the law of Christ, which is the commandment to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves, the latter portion of this verse we just read is actually the third command we'll be looking at today. The command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus expands on that command to love our neighbors as ourselves in several places, one of the most well-known of which is Luke 10, where he tells the, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to help communicate who our neighbor is, was the question being asked there. But the verses that we're concerned with right now are going to be found in John 13, in verses 34 and 35. Jesus says to his disciples here, John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Which to an extent is what we were talking about earlier with the early church. Non-Christian authors were writing in the second and third century, I mean, all throughout time about this exact type of love, the love that Christians have for one another. And it's critical for us to see Jesus' words here because they communicate that there is an aspect to, to love that is focused and contained within the body of Christ. He says his disciples are to be known by their love for one another. This is actually one of the last commands Jesus gives before he's crucified. And for him to give it in the way that he does, he says, a new commandment I give to you. It's clear that he doesn't intend for us to take this commandment lightly for him to call it out like that specifically. And this commandment really can encompass the previous two. I said there were three. The previous two we talked about using our specific gifts to serve one another and then that we should bear one another's burdens generally. This commandment is similar to those, but it goes further. For us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to have more than just a disposition and an attitude. We need to have more than just a feeling in our heart about it. It says in James that saying to someone who's freezing or hungry, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need, James says, what good is that? And it's really the same with Christ. It's the same with Christ's command here to love one another. Believing that we have love for one another, but not being physically present and actually loving one another, I think James's statement applies here as well, which is what good is it? James goes on to say that faith apart from works is dead. And the same can apply to love. Love apart from works, apart from the works of actually loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones around us, uh, part of the body, love apart from the works associated with it is dead. And the same thing that James is, James is saying that it isn't real faith if you don't have works. And I think the same thing's true. It's not real love if you're not actually loving others. We are meant to love everyone in the body. For all of us sitting here, all of us who consider ourselves part of the body, this commandment's for us. And this shouldn't overwhelm us into paralysis because of the work involved with bearing one another's burdens, with serving the church, because we can take it one thing at a time. We can take it one act at a time. Um, we can take it one family at a time, really. God seems to space things out in a way that are manageable for the size of the church. Um, I mean, the Mays have two new babies, and the Woodards have a new baby. And these things, you know, there, there, aren't, there isn't an overwhelming amount of work at any given time. God tends to space it out for the church. Um, I, I don't know why he does that way, presumably because he, he wants us to be able to serve and to find things to handle. Um, but for us and for the size of our body, uh, a small body, um, this is how God seems to do it. Fulfilling this commandment just requires us to be willing and to be present and to be part of a body. 
In fact, I would go as far as to say it doesn't seem possible to fulfill the commands we've been reading about here while functioning as what one might call a solo Christian, someone who confesses to be a believer but isn't really part of a body or maybe doesn't really regularly attend church for whatever reason or another. If we search the New Testament, we can see there's no biblical structure anywhere we can find for this idea of solo Christians, for Christians who mostly experience their walk alone um, or maybe with their family. That type of Christianity is not really described or even hinted at in Acts, which talks about uh, what it's like to live a life as a Christian or really anywhere in the New Testament. If we're doing that, then it's almost certain that we are outside the will of God um, and outside his divine purposes for us when it comes to participation in the church, in the body. And this is especially important for all of us, uh, myself included, as we come out of a time that's been unprecedented for all of us in all of our, in our lifetimes, a time, the time for us to socially isolate ourselves um, has passed, praise God. Um, but the temptation and certainly the longing to maybe just continue in the way things have been uh, is still there uh, for many of us. I even feel it myself, uh, even having still been in, engaged in the church. Even in the tech industry, where a lot of us work, the questions are being asked, how can we continue this? How can we continue this isolation and, and just stay at our homes and just completely work from our homes and not have to actually physically be with anyone? Um, it's like a real conversation that's happening uh, in the tech industry, in lots of industries right now. But even if we wanted to do that, even if we wanted to isolate ourselves, why would we reject the joy that comes from fellowship, the joy that God has given to us in, in having fellowship with our Christian brothers and sisters? Yes, there is work involved in serving the body, which we talked about, but more than that, there is a joy to be experienced that can only be experienced in Christian fellowship. Almost all of you know what I'm talking about because we experience it as a body all the time whether we're helping to meet a need for someone in the church family or whether we're just spending time together uh, over family dinners, church dinners. It's a blessing that we have, and it's something that legitimately the rest of the world wants. There's a Christian musician I follow who became a believer about 20 years ago, um, and as a result of that, uh, he has fans from when before he was a believer and then fans afterwards. And so you now at his concerts, you have this really interesting situation where you have a lot of non-Christians being put in Christian situations, Christian environments that many of them have never experienced anything like that before. And one of those unbelievers is an acquaintance of mine, and he ended up going to what is kind of the equivalent of like a small group hangout or a family dinner, as we call them. He went to one of those with some Christians the day after one of these concerts that we had gone to. And here's what he said about the experience of attending that family dinner. He had never really seen anything like it. I'm just going to read exactly what he said. He said, I was invited to his home for fellowship, which I guess is Christian talk for hanging out and telling stories and enjoying each other's company. And that's what it was. The guy who invited me and his wife and son and another close family of six, we chatted, played card games, had a campfire, and just had a wholesome, pleasant time. So this non-Christian guy goes on to say, it was enjoyable enough to make me briefly consider giving up my life where I live and relocating to their area to have more of that kind of experience more often. He says, of course, dreams like that are short-lived. These folks are, to say something controversial, true Christians. You could be a scoundrel just days out of jail with no money, no future, and they would give you a place to sleep, a meal to eat, and a way forward in some capacity. 
it's interesting to think about it from that perspective, the perspective of someone who doesn't have Christian fellowship, is, isn't a member of a church. What we are sitting here experiencing right now together, what we experience every Saturday, every day by being in community with one another, by enjoying family dinners together, doing Bible studies together, praying together on Sunday mornings, just being part of each other's lives, helping one another out, bearing one another's burdens. What we have is a gift. It is a gift from God. And it's something that the rest of the world in general doesn't have, and they want it badly. They actually need it. This guy I was just quoting was thinking it's so rare. He'd never seen anything like it. He was thinking it was so rare, he would need to move across the country to go to this special place where this thing happens. And we have this idea of universalist churches, which are really trying to replicate that, replicate what we're a part of, what we have, but of course without the burdensome aspect of acknowledging that there is a God. We were setting up here a few months ago, actually right here, and this family walked through uh, on the pathway over there. And one of them stopped and asked me if we had some set of Saturday events going on because they'd seen us setting up outside here. And I told them, nope, we do this every week. <laughs> it's not Lent. It's not a lead up to Christmas. Um, this is just church. And of, of course, they were asking it partially because of the fact that we were setting up outside as opposed to inside. But there is a definite lack of a framework for what church is, which is why I read that quote by that guy. He was so shocked at what he saw because most people don't understand that church is actually a gathering of a community, a community that comes together certainly once a week to hang out, if not more, and is totally willing to take the time to set up all of these canopies, to worship together, to hang out, to go out to dinner afterwards, to ask each other about how our weeks were, to check in on each other during the week. All of this seems normal to us, but to the world, the idea of all of this these friendships, the community we have, it is not normal, especially to the modern Western world. It's not something they have. But as Christians, we have it. We have been given it by God. This is a gift, as I said. And we are all meant to be part of a community of believers. We're all meant to be part of a body of Christian fellowship. More than that, as we've read, we're commanded to be part of it. We're commanded to participate in it to use our unique abilities to serve one another, to serve the body, to bear one another's burdens, to help each other out when we need help, just to love one another, to be there for each other, to be present in each other's lives, to come stand on somebody's porch and sing happy birthday to them, as some, some of y'all did to my wife a few months ago. And in doing all of these things, these things we're commanded to do, we are accepting this gift from God this incredible gift of community and fellowship. This gift has been, has been given to us by God, and we have to, and I include myself in this, we have to not take it for granted, or worse, reject it. We are all of us called to participate in the body of Christ. We are called to serve one another and to be in a family of faith together, to love one another and to bear each other's burdens. We're also called to receive the blessings that God gives us that come from being part of a family together, that come from experiencing life together while serving each other, being a part of a family of believers. We can't forsake this gift or, or reject it. Let's embrace it, embrace the joy that God has given us, embrace the fellowship that he has created specifically for his children, for us, and let's thank God for it and rejoice in it, participate in it. Let's pray.
thank you, God, um, for this gift, Lord. I mean, even right now as we all sit here together, Father, thank you, Lord, for fellowship, for friendship, for help, Lord. As I think through all the ways your body has helped me, Father, um, friendships that are deeper than, absolutely deeper, God, than the friendships I have with non-Christians, the things people have done for me and my family. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts you've given us, Lord, and the joy, Lord, the indescribable joy that comes from fellowship, from having this family, Father. We pray for those that don't have it, Lord. May we spread your love to those around us, Father, within the body, Lord, and bring others into this fellowship, Father. Thank you, God, for the gifts you give us, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.